Where can you find it? It seems elusive at best, non-existent at worst. Money can't really buy it. Power and prestige seem to work against it. You need it, but example and experience tell you that you may never have it. Protection. Protection. The president of Haiti didn't have it. Even in his palace on the hills, he was tragically assassinated days ago as mercenaries stormed his residence and gunned him down. The Republican National Convention didn't have enough of it as Russian hackers breached their computer systems last week, unleashing a massive ransomware attack. Maybe you've tried to get more of it, moving to better neighborhoods with gates and cul-de-sacs, only to find that all the loud bangs last Sunday weren't all fireworks, but gunshots. Or perhaps you've tried to achieve it by keeping a tight circle of friends and your lips even tighter, convinced that fewer people that you let into your life, the fewer opportunities to get hurt, only to find that those closest to you cut the deepest. Is protection possible? And if so, where can we find it? Those are the questions we'll consider this morning as we study God's Word. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Psalm chapter 91? Psalm chapter 91. And you can use one of the Bibles under your chairs if you don't have a Bible of your own, and you can find it on page 497 of those Bibles. And if you're here with us this morning and you don't have your own copy of God's Word, then we invite you to take those Bibles with you as our gift. We want nothing more than for you to have your own copy of the Bible. Psalm chapter 91, this morning we'll consider the entire psalm. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you, no plague come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. 
When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Amen. But here's what I think is the main idea of the passage we just read. The main point of Psalm chapter 91. The Lord protects his own from all danger. So we should trust in him at all times. Very basic, but very fundamental. The Lord protects his own at all times, or from all danger. So we should trust in him at all times. And as we study this psalm this morning, we'll walk through and see four aspects of God's total protection. So four points to the sermon. Number one, we'll see the protective presence of the Lord. Number two, we'll see the protective power of the Lord. Number C, we'll see the protective provision of the Lord. And number four, the protective promises of the Lord. I don't know what that game is where if you do the double kind of letter thing or word thing, you get more points. Right, all these P's here, I would crush in it, whatever that game is, right? But number one, the protective presence of the Lord. We see that in verses one and two. Number two, the protective power of the Lord. We see that in verses three through 10. Number three, the protective provision of the Lord. We see that in verses 11 through 13. And lastly, the protective promises of the Lord. We see that in verses 14 through 16. First, the protective presence of the Lord. Now, before we dive into the specific verses of this psalm, we need to consider the, the entire structure of the Psalter. I mean, many of us have viewed the Psalms as sort of random poems or songs thrown together into one book of the Bible but with really no cohesion. But we've said before that that's not really the case. While the Psalms have been written by different people at different points in Israel's history, they've all been organized under the inspiration of God to tell a story. They have a specific order. So, as a refresher, there are five sub-books in the one big book of the Psalms. They're organized again to, to tell this kind of unfolding story of Israel. Books 1 and 2 cover Psalms 1 through 72. They tell the story of the rise of God's king, but also how there's rising opposition to that king. Verses, uh, books 3 and 4 cover Psalms 73 through 106, and they tell the story of Israel's steady decline into sin and ultimately into exile as a result. And then book 5 covers Psalms 107 to 150, and it tells the story of Israel's restoration from exile. And that structure is important as it, it helps us to understand the Psalms. And saints, we need that structure to rightly understand them. God did not give us or Israel individual psalms. He gave us the psalms together as a book, as a whole. He wanted us to examine them together. And just as we read the rest of Scripture, with context being the key to understanding, 
So we read the Psalms, with context being the key to understanding. So here the context of Psalm 91 is key. If you look back one page, right, to all the words, to the words in all caps just before Psalm 90, you see that all these Psalms fall under book four. You see that in all caps right before Psalm 90. They're in this book where, where Israel is in the midst of, of exile, or the story is telling the story of exile, right? So, so, so notice and then who, who the author of Psalm 90 is, right? We, we read that Moses wrote this, this psalm. Psalm 90 is a prayer of Moses. Now, you might think that, that a, a psalm by Moses would be at the beginning of the Psalter. I mean, Moses is far older than David and Solomon and all the other authors of the Psalms. But remember, the Psalter isn't organized chronologically, but thematically, by theme. And why do Moses' words start off book four? This book characterizing Israel's time in exile? Well, because Moses knows what it is to be God's people in exile, in bondage in a land not your own. He was the one who'd seen and helped lead God's people out of captivity in Egypt. He understands what it is to be displaced geographically. But notice Moses doesn't think that means being displaced relationally. He starts off Psalm 90, Lord, you have been our dwelling place. Israel doesn't need land to be with God. He is their dwelling place. He is with his people right now in exile. Now, why is all that important to us? Because notice how our passage begins. Psalm 91 doesn't jump to a different topic or theme, but stays on the same line, using even some of the same language. And look at verse 1. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High, will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. This same theme of God being a dwelling place, even in the midst of exile, in the midst of danger is repeated. The psalmist here puts a spotlight on God and the protection that's found in him. And notice in verses 1 and 2, we see four references to God. In verse 1, he is the most high, exalted over every other so-called God. He is the almighty, El Shaddai, the all-powerful one. In verse 2, he is the Lord, his covenant name. He is the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. And he is my God a personal, not distant God. And along with these four references to God, notice the four references to who he is for his people. Verse 1, he's a shelter. In the second line of verse 1, he provides a shadow. Verse 2, he is a refuge. Not only that, he is a fortress. This highly exalted all-powerful God is greater than us, but he uses his superior strength and status not as a bully, but as a benefactor. 
He's not ultimately out to punish his people, but to protect them. Israel, as they would have read this psalm, would have acutely felt their need for protection. I mean, their entire history was one of constantly being surrounded by and attacked by enemies. But the psalmist doesn't just touch on the need for protection. He makes it clear the only place it can be found. Not in the sacred land of Israel. Not by pleading to the powerful kings of the nations. Not in anything else, but only in the person of God. In him alone there is shelter. In him there is refuge for your weariness and distress. He is a fortress in battle, a strong tower to whom you can run to. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, well, you doubt that you are. Perhaps this kind of language in these first two verses are why. Perhaps you share something of the sentiment of many who claim that Christianity is just a crutch for the weak. People too overwhelmed to do life on their own, and so they just run to some God. But friend, friends, we're, we're pretty honest with the fact that we're weak and vulnerable, and that we need God to protect and provide for us. That's not new news. But examine your own life. Are you equally as honest about your weakness and need for protection, and where you then turn to? I mean, something as simple as your ring doorbell or your alarm system symbolizes that you realize that you can't fully protect yourself and that you need something outside of you to help. What crutches are you leaning on? Are they really providing all that you need? The psalmist says that God will, but not indiscriminately. God will provide protection only for those who dwell in him, only for the one who rests in him, who the end of verse 2 says, trust in him. This language of dwelling with God is significant. It's a theme we see stretching throughout the scripture storyline. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, dwelt with God in his presence, in perfect peace in the Garden of Eden, as the Lord walked among them, Genesis tells us. But their sin broke fellowship with God, and he exiled them out of the Garden of Eden. Later, God started with a new people, promising Abraham a seed through whom he would work. He brought Israel out of bondage and into the promised land, in the middle of which was the Ark of the Covenant, which represented God's presence dwelling with his people. For they polluted the land, bringing all kinds of gods and false gods and idols in it and worshiping them. Thus God again exiled his people. But even as they dwelt in exile, they could read this psalm and be reminded that God still desires to dwell with them. I mean, they could hear God speaking to them through the psalmist. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. And if they would turn and trust in him, dwell in him, they'd find protection. The story is even more complete 
and sweet for us. We know the ultimate protection that God's presence has brought. As the eternal Son of God took on flesh, and John chapter 1 verse 14 says, dwelt among us. He lived among us as a perfect man and then gave his perfect life for us. His perfect record for our imperfect one. He experienced judgment in our place and died for our sins, the death that we deserve to die. But he rose up on the third day showing that God exhausted all his wrath and judgment on him. His heavenly father fully accepted his payment. He ascended, ascended into heaven and now he commands all of us to turn from our sins and to trust in him that we might find refuge and protection from the wrath of God poured out on all sinners who run from his presence. You see, there are only two spiritual zip codes. You either dwell in the Lord and his safety or you dwell in darkness and its dangers. How foolish is it then when we push the Lord away? hide from his presence like Adam, run from his presence like Jonah, despise his presence like Judas. There's only protection in his presence. He draws near and in his mercy calls us to draw near to him. So how can you dwell in the safety and the shelter of the Lord? Well, for one, as we've already said, you need to trust in him. So if you've never turned away from your sins and trusted in Christ, friend, today is the day to do that. Don't wait. We don't give an altar call or wait for you to walk an aisle. Right now, in your seats, you can do business with the Lord. Call out to him right now. Confess your sins and your need for a Savior. You need to find protection in him. If you want to know more what, about what that looks like, talk to someone around you. Talk to me after the service. We love nothing more than to have you walk away by walking with the Lord. But maybe you've already done that. You're a Christian. Well, then act like one. Friends, Christians know that we need to be near Christ in his presence. And so come to church. Jesus says this about the church in Matthew 18. Where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I will be also. Where's the Lord present? Well, everywhere, really. He's omnipresent. But specifically, in a special and unique way, among his people. So understand the damage and the danger you put yourself in when you don't gather with God's people. You cut yourself off, not only from them, but from fellowship with him and the protection in him as his word is preached and prayed and sang and seen in the ordinances. You know, I think one way we can know that these verses are true, that there's protection in God's presence, is by how fiercely the world, the flesh, and the devil work to keep us out of God's presence. We have real spiritual enemies. And it's not that they so much stir us up to actively attack God, but just to pull away from him. You're too busy to read your Bible today too tired to pray. You can miss one Sunday, or two, or three. No big deal. We need to build up the resolve of another psalmist 
who said, as for me, it is good to be near the Lord. And so, yes, I'm busy, but I'm at least listening to the Lord's word on my way to work or while I'm washing dishes or at the store. Yes, I'm tired, but I'm going to talk to God in my tiredness and ask him to give me strength. Yes, I don't always like getting up on Sundays and going to church, but I'm going to put it on my calendar as an immovable item that I cannot cancel. So that even when my body and my mind don't feel like going, I've got built up a routine and an expectation that on the Lord's day, I need to be with the Lord and his people. And the impetus behind it all is that in God's presence, there's rest, there's protection, there's shelter. The psalmist here speaks as one who can confidently assert that. He seems to know experientially, personally, that God is a protector. He's my refuge, my fortress, my God. Perhaps through his voice, you can hear the voice of your father or your mother, your grandmother or grandfather, some older saint here, or maybe even your own. Testify, not about how great life has been, but about how good God has been in it. He's been a refuge, a fortress, and he'll be yours too if you trust in him. Not only do we see God's protective presence in this psalm, we also see his protective power as well. Point number two, the protective power of the Lord. In verses 3 to 10, we see the Lord powerfully working to protect those who dwell in him, who trust in him. And notice in in verses 3 and 4, the the emphasis is on what God will do. And then in verses 5 through 10, the, the benefits that accrue to us because of his work. First, look at what the Lord will do. Verse 3, he will deliver you, rescue you. For someone to be in a position to deliver, they must have the power to deliver. I mean, if somebody's trying to break into your home, you don't call down the, the hall to your toddler to help. No, you call the police. You call someone who actually has some authority some power to do something about the situation. So it is with God. That the psalmist claims that he will deliver you implies first that he is able to deliver you. And that he says that he surely will deliver shows that he actually wants to deliver us. And notice the the psalmist's confidence in the Lord's power to deliver both from unseen and seen dangers. He says in in verse 3, he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler. Now, the ESV is a really good translation. It's faithful to the original text. But in places, I wish it did a better job of translating into the target language of its hearers. I mean, the snare of the fowler? Who really knows what that means, right? It's simply a bird trap, okay? So I wish that the Bible would just say bird trap, okay? (laughs) Now, the psalmist here isn't saying, right, that we are literally birds and that there are literal bird traps that we need to be aware of, right? The psalms use all kind of figurative language like here. The point is that just as traps are hidden out of sight to capture birds and all kinds of other animals, so there are hidden traps 
dangers in our lives that the Lord protects us from. I mean, you ever been driving on the highway and you in the middle of switching lanes and then someone starts laying on the horn because they're hidden in your blind spot and you're about to hit them? And then you jump back in your lane and be like, I didn't even see him over there. Thank you, Lord. Well, have you considered how many hundreds, thousands of those unseen dangers the Lord has delivered us from? When we lay down on the bed, we should all have plenteous praises of thanks to God for what he's rescued us from that we don't even know about. I mean, how many hidden plots and plans and pains has the Lord rescued us from in a single day? Multiply that by a year. And multiply that by 20 years. Praise God for his constant protection. But he doesn't only rescue from unseen danger, something hidden like a, a bird trap. He rescues us from seen dangers, something as obvious as a deadly pestilence. We see that at the end of verse 3. It's the total opposite of a trap. And no one knows that a trap is there. But with a deadly pestilence, everyone knows about it. I mean, we've just been through a year of a pandemic, and there's not a corner in the world that you don't hear about COVID. But even from something as obviously danger as a deadly disease, God is able and desirous to protect his people. Now, we need to be careful here to understand that this verse is not saying certain things. It's not saying that anyone who dies of a pestilence, of a disease, is because they were out of God's will, and so God didn't protect them. Neither is it saying that God's people, believers, will never succumb to pestilence or disease. I think we'll see an explanation in a, in a few verses on this. But for now, I think that the point is just this, that God is powerful enough to deliver his people from all kinds of danger. Verse 4 says he will cover you with his pinions or his wings, a symbol of total protection, and you will find refuge. And, and, and notice the end of verse 4. What is it that will serve as your sure shield against enemies or destruction? It's not your faith. That's what many health and wealth preachers tell us, right? Right? That, that God will take care of you if you have enough faith. God, that's not true. Because how many of us have enough faith? Right? It's, it's not our faith that matters, but the object of our faith. It's not our faith that's most, most important, but the fact that God is faithful. Right? His faithfulness is a shield. He will always be true to his word and to his people. And as he's pledged to care for us, and for those who trust in him, he will never go back on his word. His faithfulness is as protective as a full-body shield. And we see the psalmist move here from God's actions to his assurances his people can have of their safety. Because of what God will do, be faithful to his people and work for their protection, here's what you don't need to do. Fear anything. Verse 5, you will not fear any terror that comes by night. Nor do you need to fear any arrow or weapon that flies by day. Nor do you need to fear the pestilence that stalks in darkness. Nor do you need to fear the destruction that wastes at noonday. 
God will protect his people from all kinds of danger at all times, day and night, in darkness and at noonday. Fear not, he says in Isaiah 41, for I am with you. Do not be afraid, it is I, Jesus tells his disciples as he walks to them on the water through a storm. If God is for us, we just read earlier, who can be against us? No one and nothing can harm us lest the Lord allows it. So we should not fear. It's that confidence that leads the psalmist to proclaim in verse 7 that a thousand may fall at your side. Ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. There can be danger and destruction all around you, but you will be kept completely safe. It's the same sentiment shared in verse 10, that no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague shall come near your tent. It's relatively easy not to be afraid when there's no obvious threats around you. It's easy to trust God to protect you when you don't feel there's anything to be protected from. But when doom and destruction are at your door, near you, when it's all you hear about on the news, all you see on your timelines, all you witness in your neighborhoods, are you still as sure that no evil will come upon you? The psalmist says we should be. And God's people have every reason to believe him. I mean, remember what happened back in, in Egypt. God brought plague upon plague upon plague upon plague on the Egyptians. Flies and frogs and hail. The death of all livestock and even the death of every firstborn son. But it did not touch a single Israelite living in the land of Goshen. The text in Exodus tells us that God made a distinction between the Egyptians, his enemies, and the Israelites, his people. He used the full force of his power to punish his enemies, but that same full force to protect his people. I think that's key for us to consider as we think about God's protection here. It's not a complete protection from all sickness or disease or disaster, carte blanche. I mean, we know incredibly godly people who get sick, who've experienced disaster. Consider what Job went through. Although the text says that he was blameless in God's sight. Brother, it's that God will protect you from experiencing these things as an act of his judgment. I think we see that clarified for us in verse 8. Coming off verse 7, no harm will come upon you. And then look down at verse 8. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense or repayment of the wicked. The 10,000 falling at your side are God's judgment on the sins of those who don't trust in him, paying them back for their rebellion. And what's the penalty of sin? What is death? The pestilence that broke out even from time to time upon the people of Israel was an act of God's judgment upon the sins of the unfaithful. Consider the plague that God sent after Korah's rebellion. For those who don't trust in God, God will send destruction. But for those who do, they won't experience plague or disaster as a means of God's judgment or punishment, but rather be protected 
because of their clinging to the Lord. I think verse 8 helps us to interpret the, the kind of wide-ranging protection the Lord will bring his people. Protection from experiencing these things because of his wrath. What then of the godly who do suffer, who do get sick, who do catch COVID, who do suffer disaster? Well, it's not for our destruction, but rather for our good. Consider again what we read earlier in Romans. I mean, pick up your bulletin for a second. Find your bulletin and look at that first line in, in, in your bulletin, in the scripture reading. Romans 8, 28. For those who love God, all things work together for good. And if you just let your, your eyes drop down a little bit to maybe the, towards the end, what do those all things include? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, even the sword. You might experience all these things, but never as a sign of God's hatred. If you trust in him, none of these things can separate you from his love. Rather, you'll be protected under and in his love. God has the power to protect us from every kind of evil and darkness. And he desires to because we are his. It's not that we're perfect and don't deserve destruction. We're sinners and we do. But in his love, God poured out his wrath on his son, Jesus Christ, for us. So that in him, we might be delivered, covered, not only under his wings, but by his blood. And thus forever protected from God's judgment. But what's this protection look like in real time? How does God daily protect us from every evil? Well, that leads us to point number three, the protective provision of the Lord. The protective provision of the Lord. Verses 11 and 12 describe the, how the Lord protects his people. One of the main means he uses. Uh, look there at, at verse 11 with me. We read, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. Now, if you're here visiting us this morning, or if you're a rather newer member to our church, I want you to be fully aware of what kind of church we are. I mean, you might see us trying to pretty up the building, trying to spruce up the landscape. You might see us dressing neatly and speaking properly. You might learn that we work good jobs and live in decent neighborhoods. And you might think that we are some dignified people, some respectable folks. But let me tell you what kind of church we are, at least in part. We're the kind of church that believes in things like angels and demons. And not because we believe in fairy tales and live in a fantasy world, but because we believe in the Bible and live in the real world. And so you might be thinking, you don't really believe there are angels watching over you, do you? Absolutely. Because we believe every single word of the Bible. Now, what maybe we do need to correct is a false view of angels. I mean, when you think of angels, what imagery first pops into your mind? Wings, right? Wings. But hardly none of the references to angels in the Bibles refer to wings. They're like a few references to cherubim and seraphim. 
right? Often the angels in the Bible are, are, are referred to as being invisible in their activity. I mean, so the author of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22, says that when we come to corporate worship, when we come into the presence of the Lord, we also come into the presence of innumerable angels joining with us to worship God. Now, do you see any angels among you? Your kids are not angels, regardless of what you think, right? <laughs> do you see any angels among you, right? Well, the Bible says that they're there. And they might not be invisible. They're not always that way. We might just see one. One chapter after the passage we just referred to in Hebrews. The author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 2, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware of it. Now, if all angels have wings, it'll be pretty obvious who looks different at the dinner table, right? <laughs> angels do show up in visible form. They don't have wings. They often look like regular human beings, but they're not. They're spiritual beings created by God to serve him. How? By serving us. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. You know, the Secret Service employs over 4,000 special agents and officers. Some of you readily recognize with their black suits and white shirts and dark shades and stern faces. Others wear plain clothes to kind of blend in with the crowd, remaining anonymous. But they all share a, a same mission, to provide protection. That's their charge under Congress. But their protection is limited. They protect the president and the vice president and their families. They protect presidential candidates and their families. They protect former presidents and their families. They protect special dignitaries. They protect really important people in society. But God cares so much about the protection of his people that he discharges an innumerable army of angels, some seen and some not seen, not to protect just the pastor and his family, but to protect every single one of his children. We all have our own spiritual secret service standing guard 24-7 to guard us, to bear us up, to keep us from stumbling, to keep us from danger and destruction. Tell me that God doesn't care for you. You might recognize these verses as being familiar here. Maybe not from this passage, but maybe from another one. In Matthew 4, they're the very words that Satan uses to tempt Jesus. You might remember the story. He takes Jesus up on a high mountain and says, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You see how sneaky, how cunning Satan is? He hates us and wants us to fall. One way he'll do that is to try to cause us to doubt God's protective provision. Can God really help you? Or is it time for you to find another outlet, another resource to lean on? But if that doesn't work, he'll instantly play another card to try to cause us to abuse God's protective provision, to wrongly use it and to think about it. 
as he did with Jesus. To try to get us to promote a foolish, carefree life because God's got you. He'll send his angels to bear you up. Just jump off the mountain into an unwise relationship, out of fellowship with others. Trust God. Jesus responds to him in Matthew chapter 4, verse 7, that such a life isn't characterized as trusting God, but rather testing him. That God provides protection for his people isn't meant to provoke us to put ourselves into unnecessary danger, almost calling God out to prove your love and care for me. Rather, it's meant to produce in us a simple trust, a deep comfort, a resilient joy that when faced with multiple foes and multiple trials, that the Lord has abundantly provided everything we need. Like Elisha, when just he and his servant were surrounded by a whole army of Syrian horses and chariots, we can confidently say those who are with us are more than those who are with them. For if the Lord would but open our eyes, we see that all around us, all the time, are armies of angels armed to protect us. How plentiful is God's plenteous and protective provision for us? Lastly, we see God's protective promise. Point number four, God's protective promise. We end this psalm hearing God's voice directly. In verses 14 through 17, it's as if the Lord doubles down and confirms what the psalmist has said. In verses 1 and 2, the psalmist said that the one who dwells in the Most High, who abides in and trusts in the Lord, will find refuge and shelter. And in verse 3, he said that he will deliver you from snare and pestilence. We'll, We'll look at what God promises in verse 14. Because he holds fast to me, or trust in me, in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. In verses 5 through 10, the psalmist says that though all kinds of trouble and evil may come near God's people, the terror of night, the arrow by day, pestilence, destruction, evil, and plagues, that we should not fear because the Lord would be with us. Well, then look here at verse 15. The Lord says, when he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. Then just read this sweet, sweet promise of verse 16. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Friends, alarm systems might provide overnight protection. Savings and social security might provide long-term protection. But only God can promise eternal protection and security. And that's what we all actually need. And we can all be assured of having it in Jesus. John chapter 3 verse 16 says that God so loved the world that he gave his own son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, will be protected from that eternal death and hell, but have everlasting life the long life and salvation that Psalm 91:16 here promises. 
Where else can we go? What else do we need? The Lord protects his own from all danger. So we can trust in him at all times. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your care. Help us to consider it more broadly and deeply and to soar in praise for your care for us. Lord, we thank you that nothing will befall us that your hand doesn't bring. That nothing can separate us from your love that is strong to us in Christ. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will you not also with him graciously give us all things and protect us from all things? We thank you, Lord. And in Jesus, we pray for more protection and more faith to trust you. Amen. 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 Let me stand.